We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is part two of a multiple part interview. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode. You're talking about a deep embodiment here. I mean, that seems to be the theme for you is that if, if you can't touch it and embody it, then what's the point? Yeah. Someone told me once that they said I'm a warrior, you know, the warrior clan. And I said, well, what's that? You know, like, uh, you know, I don't really like, oh, do I fight? You know, but yeah, maybe I do fight and I'm very protective of the, of the sanctity of humanity. <laughs> you know, very protective of that. But, and I could understand, they said warriors um, are what just, you just said, the, they um, look at the physical and, and, and the physical and the tangible is important because through those things, the experience of, of the, the greater life, the broader life, the absolute life, the vastness of life comes through in a scene. And then in that, in that way, yes, I'm a spiritual warrior in that, in that sense. And all warriors, especially if you look at any indigenous culture, um, especially African culture, uh, the warriors carried medicine. And they carry some way that they could transform something. They learn skills, some kind of uh, shamanic skill and medicine in order to do. A warrior who deals with the suffering without medicine is not a warrior at all. Because what, what are you bringing? just to fight and you can't help the people who have been fought upon this just doesn't work and so it's important that if you're going to be any kind of a warrior spiritual or not that you have honed your medicine and your skills that you when you walk among suffering as jesus did and everybody else and buddha um that you um you know, I always call, I call in that Sojourner in Truth and Harriet Tubman and all these people who were also, you know, spiritual leaders, you know, that we don't speak about. Um, the great, great, great history of Black women spiritual leaders. Um, I have a big, fat book. They're from the 18th century to the 20th century. Back of all these mm. Black women, you know, um, daughters, I think it's called Daughters of Africa. It's an incredible book. And so that um, they weren't just preaching, you know, their intention was liberation and freedom and they were bringing medicine. And that's why they developed this, their particular, the, the style of preaching that's in black churches was developed by these black women. And, and then it was picked up that that style and that style was to stir up the soul, to stir up and, and they learned that in stirring up the soul, something that there's an alchemy in it that shifts and, and transforms what is going on inside you. They knew that, like swirling you around, you know, like <laughs> the desert, you know, <laughs> Sufis do swirl around, dance it out like they, they do in Sundance, the part of Sundance, dancing the prayer, singing the prayer, you know, to, to transform. <laughs> 
and to see. So I think it's important, all that we're dealing with in 2020, and we will continue to, it's not, we know this is not the end of anything. What is it that we are being pushed individually, collectively toward? What is being really asked of us that we aren't willing to do, uh, even in our own personal lives? And I had to ask myself that too, a lot, all the time. Because there's times I'm not willing to teach. I'm like, I'm done. I'm tired of this. And, you know, and, you know, because you want some kind of result or whatever. Some other reasons, you know, but it never stops. I'll say I'm done, but it never stops. I try to disrobe, but it didn't happen. Because it doesn't, it's not the thing out there. It's in here. It's in, like you were saying, Kevin, in my, from a childhood walk, like I was born. Okay, now everybody, let's get ready. <laughs> like I came out to wound with it. Okay, gather up. And I was like that with my family. You know, I was, I'm still like that. I'm, I'm, I was a spiritual leader. They didn't even call it that, you know, but I did lead the family and, and still do lead the spiritual aspects of the family. You know, I think I just, I was me in all those temples. I didn't change to become any of them, which made it beautiful. That made me able to carry all of it. I could carry Jesus. I could be right into the Zen Center. And um, when I started talking about God, I thought, okay, they're going to banish me. And so <laughs> somebody asked, is, is, is there a God in this practice? And I said, there most certainly is God. That is just love, right? Love is what we're headed toward and wanting or, or uh, uh, have an aspiration for. We're not becoming it. We can't necessarily make it happen, but it's an aspiration. And so we aspire toward God. We aspire to love. So there, there yeah, it's in Buddhism too. And so there's no difference between the, the, the bimbe, the sitting in a zendo, for me, or um, dancing in a Lakota, singing in a Lakota ceremony or dancing, or um, dancing in a bimbe, an African bimbe, or doing a divination for someone. It's all the same. When I do a divination for someone, that is a meditation. It is a meditation. Yeah. I, I am just loving this conversation. And some of the themes that are stirring up for me um, that I'm reflecting on personally is this this seeing as opposed to sitting, this embodiment as aliveness as opposed to just being somewhere, you know, an encounter versus experience. When we began this podcast, we had a long conversation about the word encounter versus experience yes. and yes. really, really leaned into the importance of that word encountering silence and that full embodiment of being with and in the silence. And I'm also struck by you know, maybe even this collective versus individual, but yet also this bringing of the full true individual to the collective for the wholeness and fullness of the work. And it seems, you know, all of these movements begin in the home of ourselves. And in, in this little um, book I found by you called Be Love, An Exploration of Our Deepest Desire, mm -hmm. you write, in our lifetime, there is only one person we must encounter 
one person we must meet as though we were passionately in love. That person is the essential self, the true self. And I am struck by how even that sentiment points ultimately to a collective work, to embodied work, to seeing as opposed to sitting. It points to the work, but yet it begins with the self. And a lot of times it begins with those decisions for that shift, right? The shift of encountering versus experiencing. Well, seeing, but seeing first that we're encountering each other. So the seeing, yes. when, the seeing of oneself is to see others, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So one, so that's why you, 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 it has to come through you, not say, oh yes, I know we are one and you are me and I am you. We can say that, but if, if we haven't, it hasn't come through us that way. Mm -hmm. That's what has to come through us to, to know that. And it comes through us through those challenges, through the racism, through the oppression, through the sexism, to the homophobia, mm -hmm. to war, to whatever. It something comes through us to understand and to feel into this inevitable, there is no way we cannot be interrelated. There's just no way. We came into this life through two portals, two people. There, we came interrelated. And so when we sit with ourselves and, and get back into, because we're so disconnected from that by the ways we live, the ways we live and the ways we've um, been taken away from so many things, mainly the land, <laughs> that we forget we're not in some little box of our own life. So a lot of people say, well, I need to work on myself first and then I'll be able to encounter the world. And so I'm here working on myself. Well, you're encountering, when I walked into the Zen center or any meditation, you know, environment or spiritual environment uh, or ceremony, in my encountering of myself, I was encountering the world. Mm -hmm. And that would show up once I leave, like act in the world, it will show up in my interaction just what I saw. Now I may not even be able to articulate it, but what I saw will show up anyway in how I interact and in in be in the world. So it's not waiting to get to some particular self that's, uh, you know, all together, concentrated and got the uh, samadhi down and, <laughs> and all of these things. That's not the path. And, and I mean, unfortunately, we, we don't have these ancient teachers like we used to have, and we don't have an ancient way. You know, our, our way is to grab a book, read it, and go to the nearest Zen center or wherever. You know, we don't have an, an ancient, we're not walking with someone, or even if it's your grandparents, to walk with you and show you life, to not only show you the plant and the medicine, but to show and speak life to whisper into you wisdom so that you understand which way you're going. We, we've lost that a lot. This elder council or wisdom councils or it was really hard to get to know the Dharma in the ancient times. If you wanted to know it, you better get some good sandals because you were going to be walking a lot of mountains to find somebody. And you end yeah. up just being with whoever, like a Zen Master Dogen. 
he, he fixes by, that's my teacher. And his teacher's the cook. The guy's the cook at the temple. Oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, this, that's how it used to be. And he knew he was to learn through that, to learn through that. So I think this is almost kind of a, um, I can't say it, a disruption of purity and transmission of many of the practices. Mm, because yes. There's so many books, I include my own. Yes. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm outside of that because it, and because people will read it and think they know it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then they will preach it. They will preach it to their friends and to their families because they read it and they think they're mm -hmm. doing it. And I mean, I've had somebody say, well, I don't think that was so loving and kind. And then it's, well, what is loving kindness yeah. to you? Right. What right. is oneness to you? Because if it's something, then it's going to get disrupted by me. Oh, that wasn't loving or <laughs> that wasn't being in oneness. Somebody's going to disrupt that for you. You know, that illusion about what you think it is because you have to be walked to it. These, these Zen masters, these shamans walked people under the stars to these places. That's how you learned it, by walking and sitting with them. I think some of the Zen masters, there's a story with Suzuki Roshi, and I don't know the whole story, but he had his, he was trying to train a student how to do something, and he kept just moving his hand, and he kept moving his hand, and kept moving his hand, and that was the teaching. Right. That was the teaching. Instead of teaching him, you're supposed to do this and do that, because we can do that. Oh, I can mimic that. Right. I can mimic how to, we're so smart. I can mimic how to do that, you know? And so we do it. And you see people mimicking the teaching. That know? famous Zen story of the one finger, right? Gutai? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So the mimicking. Exactly. So there, that one finger story is just so broad. It is, it is the story. Right. It yeah. is the story. The Undambara flower is the story. Yeah. How many more stories do you need? Sensei Zinju, I, I also, I want to quote you to you again, because okay, right. um, it's so, it's so powerful. And I love the importance of the kind of reframing that you gave us about, yes, and the self can also be a distraction, ultimately. And in the way of tenderness, um, I love where you write, but if we are to simply walk past the fires of racism, sexism, and so on, because illusions of separation exist within them, we may well be walking past one of the widest gateways to enlightenment. And I want to say, when I read this the first time, I read, I read widest as wildest. Mm, and it okay. still works for me. It works. The so widest much. and wildest gateways to enlightenment. I love that. Yes, yes. I wrote about, I'm writing about the darkness book. I wrote about coming back to our wild self, back to the wilderness, back here. To the wilderness because our wild selves our animal selves our senses and the way we used to crawl on the ground let's get back to that place when i wrote that i don't understand how people think not dealing with that is going to help whatever you know oneness or enlightenment or whatever harmony if we don't speak this we'll have harmony and oneness and happiness you know if we don't speak about these things at the same time i have heard um, teachers speaking about uh, oppression and racism. And I think there's still another level for some teachers to begin to integrate the, the uh, political to the spiritual, that they're not quite making that connection. So sometimes I do 
agree with the how it's being presented at times is outside of what's going on in a spiritual environment. And so it gets confusing uh, for new seekers and young people, which I had that problem with. And because um, they thought they came to Zen Center and we were going to tear down the racist institution in two weeks, you know, 70 year old institution. So I, um, <laughs> I think that when we come and all we talk about is the political aspects, which I think we know a lot about because we've been talking about it for decades. There's been many teachers and I, and I bow to my teachers, Angela Davis and Bell Hooks and these people who really um, just opened up my life you know, as uh, teachers and I honored them in my Dharma transmission. I built an altar to Toni Morrison and Angela Davis and, and Bell Hooks in my Zen, Zen transmission. So <laughs> Dharma transmission, yes. all were yes. honored and had this altar and they were like, oh my goodness, what is this? You know, <laughs> they were there, they were there. And all my Sundance sisters were there, all their, all their scarves, all their, um, not scarves, their uh, uh, shawls that I get. You receive a shawl when you're, uh, you receive shawls, they make shawls and when you're head singer like I was, you receive the shawls at times. So I have this whole stack of uh, dancers, Sundancer shawls. I also made an altar to them you know, for dancing for me. So these are the things to that also, these altars are also a response to the blatant racism and oppression. You know, it's a different kind of response. It is a spiritual response. And I think we're afraid to have a spiritual response to the political. And uh, I know we are. And because we're afraid something's gonna get left out, somebody's gonna, um, we can't let this off, this fish off the hook, you know, and these kinds of things. So how do, how do we integrate the gateway, you know, so that it's not, we're just not sitting talking about teaching oppression as a Dharma talk, you know, that you're not teaching oppression, but you're teaching what oppression really is in terms of the spiritual aspects of our lives as human beings. And that's what I was trying to do in the way of tenderness. Uh, I, did, I wasn't really interested in talking about oppression you know, our racism, you know, some people get, I said, well, she didn't really get into racism, you know, or the system and da, da, da. No, I didn't, I did that intentionally. And I had one university professor call me. He says, I need you to tell me what to do. You know, I mean, he actually got my phone number. Uh, he was from the University of Wisconsin. He says, you know, you talk about this white guy in your book. I'm that white guy, I'm trying to be, you know. <laughs> he was really sincere. And I love that he did that, you know, that <laughs> he was gonna link. Because I got a chance, because I already said it in the book, I'm not going to, if you read it, there is a line in there that says, I'm not going to tell you. And I said, because if I tell you how to deal with this, 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 and that today, you will try to do that in the year 2025, and it won't fit. Because everything has changed. The language, the people, the place, the, everything has changed. It won't fit. And you're going to try to do this as some kind of tool technique that won't work because it's so outside of the moment and so outside of your heart. And if you could get the heart of the story that's in the book, if you could get the heart of the story, you will know what to do. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence.
uh, Sensei Zenju, you are a poet, and I'm a bit of an aspiring poet. Uh, so whenever we have a poet on the um, on the podcast, I always like to ask, well, what advice do you have for poets? And you're you're speaking poetically, anyways. And you know, obviously, we've got embodiment, we've got the relationship with the land, the relationship with with ritual, finding that integrity that transcends labels. I mean, there's so much here that already is kind of grist for the mill. But if there's anything else that you feel like, if if somebody came to you and said, Obi Wan, what's the good word for for me as an aspiring poet? What might you say in response? You're gonna really, you're gonna really love if you get the book, uh, The Deepest Peace, because okay. I do write about a lot about poets. And one thing I do say is poets are insane. They're insane, you know? <laughs> and so I say, hold on to that insanity, you know, to be, to, be, to be such in a world like this, to be a poet and to find poetry in the shouting, in the, in the killing, in the, in the everything of life is like what somebody would say, you must be insane. You're out of your mind. You can't. And I, and I feel like I, I, I just lived with, live with that as poets, that poets hear and listen to life in clips. And whether or not you can keep it in that simple clip, it, it will still the essence of, of it. You know, I was turned on to poetry by a teacher in elementary school because I refused to read a book because it was too long. Any book, anything past 10 pages without pictures was too long. And so teacher said, and I wouldn't do the book reports. So thank, thank, thank God. This teacher said, okay, you don't have to read them, but I would like you to read a book of poetry. And I like, didn't know what the hell poetry was. I was nine. She gave me the book. Oh, I might've been seven, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine up in there. She gave me the book to read. And I went through the whole thing and I was just like, wow. I couldn't believe that like, you mean you can tell a story in one page? You can tell a story in one, in 17 words? You know, it was like, that was just opened up and that started the burst of, uh, I wish I had those poems from when I was eight. <laughs> you know, just burst of writing, you know, and I just became insane with it. And um, I love listening to poets and hearing poetry of all kinds, all kinds. And, poets from every background I, it's just it's what I think led me into uh, Zen as well because one of the teachers just loved poetry too and he would read a lot of it and that's what um, drew me to uh, this it's a way of life it's a way of seeing life and still very hard to articulate you know like I always Wonder. I said, can you really write a, can you write a poem in, in less than five words? And I did. I managed to put one in the book. I don't, I don't know if it's less than five words, but it goes, all I hear are mountains. And I said, yeah, there it is. And that's just the, the earth speaking through us about our lives, you know. So that book, uh, I, I always wanted to write a book of poetry, have different kinds of poetry, you know, spiritual poetry, and then I would call it more secular poetry. But, uh, I never, uh, I was taught all the forms and styles, but I didn't stick to them. I didn't stick to them in the book either, so I'm a little bit afraid. You know, what, 
but I've gotten some, a lot of good feedback. I know some um, pretty good poets, translators, which is another thing I learned about translating with Kaz Tanahashi and Peter Levitt and some of these poets from the past and reading David White and, you know, these kinds of things. So I don't, I don't have a, um, although Audre Lorde wrote a lot of, I would say, spiritual poetry that never was, she was never acknowledged for the, the height of her poetry and the depth of it. I think they kind of, you know, it's just, they don't believe we can write that kind of poetry Black people write, shouting, always shouting. And then we're kind of, the, the images of us are, are pushed forward as a shouting all the time and not sitting and not writing haiku. So I just say F to poets, you know, to, to uh, get out of the way uh, of what's coming at you and write it down and then write it down again and then again and again until there's hardly any words. And, and maybe it's long, like I have long ones, but maybe this long one could have been long, like a book. I just, I write it till, it's something I learned as a kid when I was writing. I said, write it till it feels like you're not flying anymore. You know, you just kind of hit the ground and you're done. And then I go back and see if I, if I write, if I'm flying again, you know, with those words. And usually that's the case because they're not my words, really. They're coming through me. Words are hard. They're very hard. And writing's hard. It's not natural. I tell all my students that writing is not natural. It's something we created to try to express it. We used to just dance and sing, you know, without words, you know, not singing, not singing words, but singing, making sounds from what we hear of the earth. That's the way we would articulate it. And writing came way, way later. Still cannot capture. I cannot capture all that I would like to. I even picked up photography to see if I could. I was a great photographer, but it still wasn't what I wanted. So I think poetry, I really write a lot about being a poet and letting the poem come to me. So I hope that uh, folks who are interested in um, poetry that transforms and is about freedom and liberation, that's what's in the deepest piece. So, and the deepest piece is, is coming out in December, is that correct? Yeah, coming out in December. It's on pre-sale, but you know, if you like, kind of wait, kind of makes people antsy. So it comes out. I think the first or second week of December, and I I was nervous about it because all you know everything just busted loose right after I finished that book, and mm. and then there's like um, all these great great books coming out from other uh, Black Buddhist teachers, you know, about rage and love and yeah. you know being Black and Buddhist and all these things, and um, here I am saying peace, and so. <laughs> So I feel like it's still timely in the sense that so much has happened that yeah. we rarely stop to uh, bring in and to be with the earth again. This is how we become wild again. And this is how we, um, you know, find uh, our ritual and our, our ceremony that will transform our lives is through the stillness and the contemplation and um, this poetry. I wrote the book not to be profound and never be but to be profound, but to help people have an experience while they're reading it, an experience of meditation and stillness. So when you read it, you might fall asleep. You might fall asleep. <laughs> and so would you say that the deepest piece starts you with the wildness and then the darkness book is going to continue and unpack that more? Is that what is that? 
No, the darkness, okay, so there's the peace. The, the darkness is part of it because darkness is part of the earth, right? Right. And so we're still, I'm still reaching into this kind of intangible place, which peace is intangible, and um, a little bit less, less of the Buddha dogma, our uh, teachings, you know, less of that. And that's the deepest peace. I, I may, I don't even know if the word Buddha is in the book, but you know, Zen is, I know that because I'm, but I'm talking about another kind of Zen, not a Zen you can go off to a Zen center and get, <laughs> it's a Zen that, that happens in being. Mm. And so trying to bring us back to away from the agitation, maybe the way a tenderness may have caused, I hope it didn't, but it may have caused agitation. And I could see that, like I said, students wanted to go and tear down the, the institution and I knew they hadn't read my book, but they said they had. They came because they came to sit with me because I wrote the way of tenderness. But I, the way they were responding to race there, I knew they hadn't read the book, and it was very hard to get them to sit still. So I think the deepest peace started coming up. Like, how can I create help folks create you know stillness just from reading because that's what people will do. They will read. They will not take the time to walk. So this book is like, you have to take your time. You're like, I mean, when I re read it again, like I put it down and I read it, I lost my way. I was like floating somewhere. I said, oh my God, maybe I shouldn't send this out. You know, people are going to be floating all over the place, you know? So, <laughs> so I hope there's a, you know, so the darkness book will hopefully ground people back you know, back into, uh-oh, uh when darkness comes. And that might unground people too, because I'm saying, you know, opening to what terrorizes you. And so people might not pick that book up at all. You know, if I keep, if I keep that tagline on it. And then the shamanic bones is still in that world. You know, we're still dealing with the earth. All of it's earth, 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 earth. You know, so the shamanic bones of Zen is about this as an earth practice. It did that it was and it is. And, um, and meditation is not for everyone. It's for those who are interested in being a shaman of your life, the shaman of the world. So if, it, if you don't have that sense of wanting to um, go in and be trained by the darkness, <laughs> in Zendo, wherever it is, be trained by the darkness, listen to the darkness, uh, see what it's, it has to say, that thing you're scared of, then you know, that's what the practice is. If you don't want to do that, then I would say don't, don't meditate. Yeah. Don't, don't pray. Don't, don't be spiritual. Don't, pray, don't, don't, don't do any go, of that. Don't, don't go, don't go to the monastery. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of a Carmelite friar, William McNamara, who said, when you pray, you enter the cave of the lion. That's right. Yes. And, yeah. That's it. I love that. Mm. I might have to, um, Send me that quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Sensei Zenji, we would it would be remiss of us to uh, not ask you if you have a silence hero, someone living or dead that embodies silence to you. So the immediate person that comes to mind is my father. He was silent by nature, but also by harm, both the peaceful and the harm. So the harm was he spoke uh, Creole. He's from Louisiana and he's old black man. <laughs> uh, he was 60 when I was born. So he had these old ways and um, he was a, a gardener and a carpenter. You know, he did a lot of quiet things and I was walking alongside him all this time. He was 
my first teacher of silence and because he didn't talk. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was because his language, he had a, another language. It wasn't English. It was not his first language. And so at, when I was younger, I just thought he didn't have anything to say, you know, and then I, that's why I would walk along with him. That's the only way I could be with him was to be in his garage with the wood and the saw, you know, and to be water the garden, mow the lawn, you know, all these things we would do together. And when he got ill, he got older, he got very ill. He was at the hospital and he was talking with this woman that was my age. By then I was 25 or so. She was my age. She was a doctor. He was talking to her and I was looking for my father. And, and I was like, where is my, I said, well, that's him. That's my father right there in a wheelchair with that doctor. And he was just like talking 10 miles a minute in his <laughs> language, mm -hmm. in Creole. And she knew Creole. And mm -hmm. I, I was like, who is that guy? <laughs> and I was so happy to have gotten a glimpse of that man before he died. Mm -hmm. He was so like me, <laughs> he had a lot to say. He had a lot to say and teach. And so, but he is, he is the one who, where I learned to just watch the world. When we sit in front of, I asked him one time, daddy, I said, why do you water the yards so much? You know, so long, because we would just sit there and he had the water hose out and I would just sit there with him. I mean, we would say nothing for like an hour. And he said, I said, why are you water so long all the time? He said, because it has to get to the roots. Okay. There it is. <laughs> yeah. I got it. There's your Zen cone for life that right was there. A lesson, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, the roots. I said, that could be like my, you know, kid is like, if you know, you're burrowing down kids' imagination. Like, we'll yeah. be here for the rest of our lives, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my father, Lawrence Tila Manuel Jr. Sharecropper, mm. born in Opelousa, Louisiana, in 1898. One of the living lineage lineage holders of the of wisdom. Yeah, I'm second generation mm. from slavery. Oh, Sensei Zenju, thank you so much. I love ending on that note too, mm. um, because it's got to get to the roots. And giving your dad the last word on that is just really beautiful. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today and for being with us. Thank, right, thank you again. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccoman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com slash encountering silence 
to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.